don't know, my name's Sean. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm glad you're here. Did you know this? Did you know this? Did you know this week is... Yeah, those two people in here are excited. Um, hey, uh, we, we do just want to take a moment and just say, hey, if you're a teacher, we know that uh, there's a lot of people involved in education in our community. Uh, we are so grateful for you. Um, I, I know that you give hours that nobody else sees, and, uh, but I want you to know that on so many lives, you have an impact you'll never know. And uh, we're so grateful because I also know that for a lot of you, that uh, working in education is, is not just a job, it's really a calling that you believe that God has sent you t- to this place in this moment, in this mission field, and we're so grateful for that. And so actually, as you leave today, um, we're going to have some little gift bags for you. If you work in education, we'd love for you to grab one of those just as a little way for us to say thank you to you um, for, for giving your life to serve uh, youth in our community. Um, we're going to be working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, Hebrews 4 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. Um, everything is going to be on the screen right here, but you can follow along on your phone or um, on a paper copy of it. Um, recently, I was listening to a sermon by one of my favorite preachers to ever draw breath. Maybe my favorite. And his name is Fred Craddock. And if you've never heard Fred Craddock, you should, you should go um, listen to Fred Craddock. The guy is amazing, so gifted. And uh, I was listening to a sermon. He actually was preaching on a passage in Hebrews. And he said this. Um, he said, there is no author who is so impassionately committed to con- trying to convince the people that he's speaking to to endure. There is no book of the Bible that expresses such love and devotion to the audience as the book of Hebrews. He says you, m- you might find other books like Romans, a masterful, eloquent theological demonstration, but that's much of what it is. And there's spots in Romans where Paul pleads with people, Right? You, you might think like um, Philemon, Philemon, but it's, it's for one person. It's a short little book. It's one chapter. It's a short little letter. The writer of Hebrews sits down and writes 13 chapters that are solely dedicated to pleading with his audience, please don't give up. Please stay committed. If you're here for the length of our sermon series, for a year and a half or two years, you're going to hear this over and over and over again. We've already seen multiple times in the beginning of the book of Hebrews that the writer will say stuff, he'll say stuff like, like, fix your eyes on Jesus. Face your body and your life towards Jesus and, and, and anchor yourself in Jesus. And last week, the phrase he used was, was um, to make sure we all have a commitment to one another, to make sure that none of us falls away because he sees in those he's writing to. He sees a, a, a world that is busted and chaotic and full of pain and confusion. And he sees a group of people who it appears their life is just, their faith is just teetering. And for 13 chapters, and if you don't have perspective for how big this book is, like um, 13 chapters is a lot. Go home and start handwriting the book of Hebrews, right? Just start copying it and see if you make it past chapter two before your whole arm just cramps up from writing. And he handwrites this passionate letter to them and he pleads with them. So today, we're gonna look at them pleading again with his audience. Last week he said, he was pleading with them to say, hey, make sure that none of your brothers and sisters fall away. This week he's gonna say directly to you, 
He's going to say to me, he's going to say, make sure that you don't fall away. And, and, and to show us how not to fall away, he's going to show us an example of a people that were, um, he's going to use the word disobedient or, or unfaithful. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at the, the four verses we're going to look at and, and look at the story he's talking about. The people he's talking about, that he describes as disobedient, unfaithful. But with just those words, there's, there's a lot of times that we construe in our mind what it means to be unfaithful, what it means to be disobedient. And so I want to contrast, I want to look at another story that looks very different, but in many ways is the exact same story, and see if we might be able to kind of refine down what exactly it looks like, according to the writer of Hebrews, to be unfaithful, to be disobedient, and then challenge ourselves that we might, as he says, to plead with us that we don't fall away in our faith. Then in the midst of pain and heartache and confusion, unanswered questions in a world that looks a lot more like the desert and the wilderness than it does like the Garden of Eden, that we would be faithful to endure. So here we go. Hebrews, Hebrews 4, right, is where we're at. Hebrews 4, verse 2 and 3 and 6 and 11 is what we're going to read. So it says this, for indeed, we have had good news preached to us. Now, just a little um, Bible scholar thing, just so you know, this phrase here in Greek, this word here in Greek, good news, a lot of times we translate it differently. We translate it this way, well, gospel, um, and the word gospel is actually in the Greek. It's just literally this phrase. Anytime you're reading in scripture and you see the word gospel, um, you can just switch it because sometimes we kind of like overcomplicate things and we're like, oh, gospel. And it becomes this really kind of theoretical thing. But he's literally saying like, I've preached, when it says like, I've preached the gospel to you, I've preached the good news to you, right? So he says, we've had the gospel preached to us just as they also did. So now you start to see He's given us an, a group as an example. Now, this example is going to turn out to be a negative one, but he's going to start saying there's, there's a group of people that we should be paying attention to. But the word they heard did not benefit them because they were not united with those who listened with faith. It's an important phrase. They were not united. They were not joined with. They were not in harmony with those who listened with faith. So, so he's already starting, you see, he's starting to this contrast of there's these two groups of people, and we have to make a choice what part we're going to be a part of. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. Now it says this in verse 6 and 11. Those who previously had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Now just a second ago, he said they failed to enter because they weren't united with those who listened in faith. Right? So not listening in faith or being unfaithful, he says, just a couple verses later, is to be disobedient. Therefore, let's make every effort. This is, this is as Fred Craddock would say, over and over and over again you hear him, pleading with them, pleading with them, with everything that you have. Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall away by following the same example of disobedience. Right? He says, you know the story. Don't be like them. Don't be like those who are faithless and disobedient. And, and here's the thing. You may not know the story. So let me tell you the story he's referring to. The story comes in numbers. But to know the story, you have to kind of know the backstory. And the backstory is that the God's people, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, were enslaved. And they were enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. 
right? Generation after generation. It was not a new thing for them. This was their existence. They were an enslaved people in Egypt. And God shows up, miraculously God shows up. And 10 plagues, and he leads them out into the, towards the wilderness. And they come to the Red Sea. And, and the most powerful army the world had ever seen comes chasing after them to crush them. And without a weapon, without raising a single weapon, God destroys the greatest army the world had ever seen and protects his people. He takes them through the Red Sea, and he takes them the other side, and, he, and, and in the wilderness, God's objective in the wilderness, we talked about this a little bit last week if you were here, God's objective in the wilderness is not punishment. God's objective in the, in the wilderness, when he leads them in the wilderness, it's just a pit stop. When he takes them out in the desert, it's not the final destination. It is a place that he has taken them to teach them in his great mercy and kindness. He's teaching them what it means to be his people. That's what the Ten Commandments and the law and all that kind of stuff is about. He's preparing them to be his people because then God's plan is he's going to take them to the Jordan River. He's going to, as we're going to see in Numbers 13, well, look at it, Numbers 13. You don't have to turn there. Let me just show it to you. Numbers 13, verse 2, this is what God says. He says, send out men for yourselves to spy out the land of Canaan. This is the promised land, right? This is what eventually becomes Israel. This is um, what elsewhere is called the land flowing with milk and honey, right? This is the beautiful gift, the place that God has promised since Abraham that he's going to give them this land. He took Abraham up on a hill and he said, well, I'm going to give this place all to your descendants. This is that place. And look at what he says. Send, send out men for yourselves to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give the sons of Israel. God doesn't say, hey, um, go check out that land. Let me know if I can afford it. Like, let me know. Interest rates have really been going up. The housing market's going crazy. It could be a bit of an investment. He doesn't say that. He says, go look at the land. Look, look right here. Go look at the land, which I'm going to give. God doesn't say, go look at the land and check it out and decide, like, do you think that this will work? Do you think we can do it? Do you think, like, we can figure out how to make this all work and, and we can deal with these people? He doesn't say that. He doesn't even ask them to go evaluate the power and the might of the people who live in the land. He just says, I want you to go take a tour and go see the place that I'm going to give the sons of Israel. Now, I think Moses was a wise man. Moses probably knew a lot. Um, God obviously has his providence, and it, and it doesn't say right in the text, but there's an interesting thing that happens in Numbers 13 that I want to point out, because God knows us, right? God knows the way he made us. He knows our character. He knows that we are people who are prone to wander, right? And I think Moses probably knew that. So if you look through the list, you don't have to do this right now, but if you have your phone out, you could if you wanted to. If you look through the list, um, it tells you from Numbers 13, verse 3 to verse 15, it tells you the 12 men who were sent. Now, if you look through the list, there are probably two names that you would expect to see in that list. Can you think of the two most well-known spies? Anybody in the room? The two most well-known spies who go into the land uh, of Canaan. You may remember? Joshua, Caleb, Caleb and Joshua. Good job, Caleb and Joshua. Here's the interesting thing. If you, live, uh, if you look through the list, Joshua is not listed. You can look through it later. You can look through it later. Joshua is not listed. There's a guy listed. There's 12 of them. There's a guy listed, but his name's different. His name is Hosea. 
His name's Hosea. And then in verse 16, it says this. This is, this, is, this is just beautiful, like God's brilliance, God's wisdom. It says this, but Moses called Hosea the son of Nun, what we call Joshua or Yehoshua. Yehoshua. Moses called him Yehoshua, which actually, um, just interesting to know, is that, that that's actually Jesus' name. That in Jesus' name, that Jesus' day, the name they would have called him was Yehoshua. Why is this important? Because this name means saves or salvation. This name means God saves. God is salvation. And I don't think it was a coincidence because Moses looked out at a bunch of people who just like us struggled with trusting and having faith and he renamed one of the 12 God is salvation. God is the one who saves. So that every time they walk, just think about this. Think about this because names have meaning, right? Every time they walk through the land, they're like, okay, we're going to split up. God saves, you go that way, and we're going to go this way. Oh, did you see how big they were? God saves. Did you see how big those guys were? Like every time they say his name, they're declaring a truth that Moses wants them to remember because he knows that we are a people who are prone to forget. Like if they went walking through the land and they just went, Hoshua, salvation, they might begin to think that the deliverance of the land of Canaan was their job. But every time they walk, every place they go, hey, God saves. What did it look like from over there? Do you think God could do it? God saves? Do you, do you see this? He knows that we are people who are prone to wander and who are prone to wrestle. And so I want to look at another story because you know the end of the story, right? They come back. Do you remember what the spies say? Ten of them say this. They say, oh, they're so big. They're so huge. They're descendants of giants. You know how big they are? Look at the grapes. <laughs> I, maybe there's a cultural disconnect. I, if I went to a place and tried to describe how mighty and powerful someone was, I wouldn't come back with a grape and be like, look at how powerful they are. Look at this grape. Right? But they come back. They come terrified. People are huge. We could never conquer them. We could never conquer them. And then they start this absurdity because we are an absurd people, are we not? They start going, oh, could we just go back to Egypt? You remember the good old days when they just beat us for fun? Oh, could we go back to Egypt? We could just, what if we just all went back to Egypt and we just all died there? Wouldn't that be great? What? begin to doubt. And then eventually, eventually their, I, I don't know, turns to a response to God where they say, we won't go. And we talked about this last week really briefly, but if you weren't here, just to recap, I just remind you, because I think this is important. God demonstrates what should be the most terrifying form of his wrath any human could experience. God says to these people, his terrifying wrath is this. He says he gives them what they want. God says, I brought you the land of Canaan because I want to give you this land flowing with milk and honey, this beautiful place. I'm going, I'm going to give it to the sons of Israel. That's what he says. And they say, no, we'd rather just die in the wilderness. And God says, okay. The most terrifying form of God's wrath I believe you could experience is for God to let you have what you want. And he does. This is this example that the writer of Hebrews pleads with him. He says, don't be like this. 
Don't be like this. Don't be like this. And we could infer a bunch of things of what he means when he says, don't be like the disobedient, unfaithful people. We can infer a bunch of things, but to, to align with Scripture, there's a, there's, a, there's a rule in hermeneutics that you let the Bible interpret the Bible. To, 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 to see the full text of Scripture together and understand what maybe he's talking about, I, I want to look at a different story, maybe a surprise story. Matthew 14, you, you maybe know part of the story. Matthew 14, um, it, it's a story, Jesus walks on water. You just heard the story? The disciples, um, Jesus sends them out on the boat and a storm rises up, and it says that from the hill that Jesus could see them, right? He could see them, and, and, and they're terrified, and, and the water's crashing, and Jesus isn't with them. <laughs> that Jesus does this, like, um, Jesus does this, like, absurd thing, okay? Is it okay for me to say that? Jesus does this thing that not a single one of us would have fathomed as a solution. Jesus walks on the water, now, sometimes you spend enough time in church that you start going, yeah, well, of course Jesus walked on the water. He's God. Why would he not walk on the water? And the question would be, who would have thought walking on the water was the solution, right? Like Jesus is God. He could have just made himself there. He could have just floated there. He could have been like, right? But in what had to be a uniquely terrifying experience, have you ever been on the water when it's dark? It is, it is terrifying, a couple years ago, my in-laws came out to visit. We uh, went to Lake Shasta. We were on a houseboat for a week at Lake Shasta, and they flew out like a day or two early. And so we took my dad's bass boat to go take him back to the harbor and then um, uh, take them in one of our cars into Reading so that they could fly out, right? And so we take the boat back, and my dad says, you know, mark on the GPS on the, the, the depth finder, and it'll draw a line where you go in the boat so you can find your way back in the dark, because trust me, you won't be able to find your way back in the dark. And I was like, <laughs> whatever, you don't know my navigation skills, right? So luckily, my dad knows I'm an idiot, and so he put the mark on it so that it would trace for itself. And we go back, and we drop him off, and we, we take him to the hotel, and, and uh, you know, we hung out for a while because um, they had hot showers. And if you've ever been on a houseboat, everyone gets pretty ripe after a couple days. And uh, so we took some showers. We had some dinner with them, and, you know, it started to get dark. And we're like, oh, we should probably head back. So we drive back. It's, you know, 45-minute drive back to the bay, and we get in the boat that's still, you know, tied up there. Nobody stole. And so we get in the boat. And uh, it is black. It is, like, black. Like, there is almost no moon. And you can see nothing except for an occasional glimmer of light on top of the water. We go to pull out of the harbor. And it is terrifying. It is totally disorienting. And there's not even a storm going on. We're in a very seaworthy boat, and I'm terrified. You can't see if you're like suddenly about to run into shoreline, if you're suddenly going to run into like a bear, because there's bears in the lake, right? If you're going to run into another boat, it is terrifying. And these guys are out in this boat, and they can see nothing. There's, there's no shore lights. It is pitch black, and there's a storm raging. And all of a sudden... This ghostly figure appears out in the distance. Okay? Now, I, I don't know about you. I would have been terrified in the storm in the dark. All of a sudden, a ghost-like figure begins to walk towards me. Like, I'm, I'm out. Like, I, I don't know if I'm jumping out of the other side of the boat and just swimming for shore. Like, I'm not waiting. Terrified, right? This is the story. Okay? And it says this. Matthew 14, 25. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them 
walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They were terrified and said, it is a ghost. That's terrifying. And then just add to it. And they cried out in fear. They cried out in fear. Now, you probably know how the story ends. Peter eventually is going to walk on the water. And we're going to celebrate the demonstration of Peter's faith that he'd step out on the water. And that's awesome. You see, their terror, their fear. The people in Numbers 13, they were terrified. They come back. They're so big. They're so mighty. We can never conquer them. Peter and the disciples, men who eventually show great demonstrations of faith, react in fear as well. Here's the thing. Fear and faith live in harmony together so often. To be in fear is not a sign of being faithless. They were terrified. Peter was terrified. As the story goes on, you can imagine that Peter doesn't get less terrified if you know the arc of the story. Faithlessness is not fear. In fact, here's what I'd venture to you. Here's what I'd, I'd propose to you. If at some point in following Jesus, you have not been terrified, I, I, I don't know how faithfully you've been following him. Jesus calls us to terrifying things. Fear is a normal emotional human reaction. Sometimes we, we create this story in our mind that to be afraid is somehow discrediting our faith. Fear, being terrified, is to recognize I'm in a storm and there's a ghost and that's freaky. That's okay. Fear doesn't discredit our faith. You know what else doesn't discredit our faith? Is, is look, look, at, look at what Peter says. He sees the ghost out there. He sees the ghost. Peter responded and said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. Now, here's the thing. Um, Peter, a lot of times, gets thrown on the bus for, like, opening his mouth and saying things, you know, like, without his brain registering what he's saying. And in that, I relate very much to Peter, right? There's a Brian Regan. He's a great comedian. He does this whole bit about, you know, there's the moments in your life where you just start saying things, and then you're like, ah, please come back. Please come back, right? And that's, like, Peter's whole existence. Here's the thing. In nobody's mind... Would you have reasonably fathomed that this was a normal response to seeing a ghost out in the water? Right? Lord, if it's you, let me walk on the water too. Like in what world is that? Does that make any sense? But look, here's, here's what I want you to see. Look, look what it says right here. Lord, if it is you, in this moment, does Peter believe that that's Jesus? Let me ask it differently. In that moment, does Peter know with certainty that that's Jesus walking on the water? He doesn't. Somewhere in his heart, in his mind, he sees a ghostly figure walking on the water and he begins to have something that looks like faith. And he says, maybe that's Jesus. And if it's Jesus, he can do crazy things. And if that's Jesus and he's walking on the water, he can make me walk on the water. But the question he proposes is a question riddled with doubt. Sometimes we've created a store in our lives to say that doubt 
and fear are opposing for doubt and faith are opposing forces. That we either have faith or we doubt. That, that we look at the people in Numbers 13 and they doubted that God could do it and they were terrified and they said, I don't know, I don't know if God could do this. And we look at Peter and he says, if it's you, I don't know that it's you. I'm not confident enough that it's you. But if it's you, and we think that faith and doubt are opposite ends of the spectrum, and that if we're going to be people of faith, we can't doubt. There's a theologian, probably one of the most, most important theologians of the 20th century, a guy named Paul Tillich, and, and this is what he says about this. He says this, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is, in fact, one element of faith. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. When we walk in faith, we are walking in a way that we are trusting, even though we don't fully understand. When we walk in faith in Jesus, we are trusting, even when the world doesn't make sense to us, even when all of what God's doing doesn't make sense to us, that we are trusting that he will, even if we don't know how. Numbers 13, the people respond, and they, they, they respond with fear, and they respond with doubt. Peter, he's out on the boat. He responds with fear. He's terrified. He responds with doubt. But there's one moment where the whole story changes, and it goes from a story of disobedience and unfaithfulness to a story of faith and obedience. And it's the moment that Peter's feet get wet. It is not until Peter's feet step out of the boat and his feet get wet that his faith is demonstrated. If in that moment, if Peter said, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. And Jesus' response is famous. It's one word. He just says this. He says, come. <laughs> What's funny about that is he doesn't tell him how. Right? He just assumes like Peter's going to know how to walk on, even how to get out of it. But he just says, Come. And the moment Peter demonstrates his faith is the moment he responds in obedience to the God who calls him out of the water and his feet get wet. It should not be lost on us that the contrast of the story in Numbers 13 is a people who were unwilling to walk through the river into the promised land. They were a people who were unwilling to get their feet wet. In fact, the next generation, the next generation is going to go in the promised land. And God, you remember, he says, I'm going to give this land to the sons of Israel. Now, it's not going to be you because you guys don't want it. You want to die in the wilderness. But the next generation, they're going to go into the promised land. And you know how they do it? They load up all the priests and they all load up the ark and they load up all the important uh, religious symbols that they have. And 200 meters out in front of the group, this group walks. And they walk to the river. And it says in the text, it says that it is not until their feet are submerged in the Jordan that God will stop the rivers. It is not until their feet are wet. Do you see this? Not until their feet. They can have all the faith in the world to say, God, you can do it. Woo! We're going to have a worship service. And we're going to all stand out here in the desert. And we're going to say, God can part the seas. God can stop the rivers. God can conquer Canaan. God can do it. But it is not until their feet get wet that the fullness of their faith is demonstrated. In spite of their fear, in spite of even their doubt, 
It is the moment that Peter's feet get wet. It's a moment that the Jewish people's feet get wet, that God stops the river, that God shows up in miraculous and amazing ways. And so my question to you is this. When was the last time, despite fear, despite maybe even some doubts you have, that you got your feet wet? When was the last time, maybe with fear, with uncertainty, with terror in your mind, you knew that God was calling you to something, something that didn't make sense, something that you didn't have answers for, something that didn't make sense to anybody else in your finances, in a relationship, in your job, in a decision, and you trusted God and you stepped out and you got your feet wet. Faith, obedience, looks like us being willing to get our feet wet. You see the difference between the story in Numbers and the story in Matthew? is that in one moment, their hearts went from, I don't know, to I won't go. There's something that God's calling you to. I know it. It might be big, and it might be terrifying, and it might be difficult, and it might be hard. It might be something small and tiny that you know that God's been pressing on you to do. There is something God is calling you to. And faith and obedience comes in the moment where we're willing to get our feet wet. Disobedience and faithlessness, it's when we go from saying, I don't know, to I won't go. So what is it for you? Maybe it has something to do with your finances. Maybe it has something to do with a job. Maybe it has something to do with a relationship. Maybe it has something to do with a decision. Maybe it has something to do with something you've been wrestling with in your heart. Maybe it has to do with just like following Jesus. And maybe you like, no, you should, but it's really terrifying. You don't have all the answers about how God works and what he's doing and what salvation means, and you're scared, and the invitation to Jesus is to trust and to come. Maybe it literally means like getting wet, and it means getting baptized, and it's something you've never done before, and it's terrifying, and it's scary, and you don't want to be in front of crowds, and you don't want to be on stage. But here's what I know. The Spirit is living and active that God is calling you to walk in a kind of faith that sometimes is riddled with fear and sometimes is loaded with uncertainty and doubt. But the writer of Hebrews pleads with you, pleads with you, do not harden your heart to the work of the Spirit, to walk in faith and obedience to what he's called you to. When you do, <laughs> when you get your feet wet are the moments that God shows up in beautiful and amazing ways. So may all of us, may all of us be people that in the midst of our fear and our uncertainty are willing to get our feet wet, even when we don't have all the answers.